planet is reaching that stage whereby within 10 years, if we do nothing and we continue the way we're going, or even if we do a little bit, within 10 years, most changes will be irreversible for most species on the planet. Everything is under control. If we're all going to die anyway, shouldn't we be enjoying ourselves now? No, I'd like to quit thinking of the present right now as some minor insignificant preamble to something else. Let me tell you this. The older you do get, the more rules are going to try to get you to follow. <laughs> You've got to keep living, man. L-I-B-I-N. Everything is under control. As long as some specialized class is in a position of authority, it is going to set policy in the special interests that it serves. I think it's women who are going to have to break the spiral of power and find the trick of cooperation. Everything is under control. No one's controlling me. No one's controlling me. Say it, sister. What's necessary is to penetrate the clouds of deceit and distortion, uh, to learn the truth about the world, and to act to change it. Uh, that's never been impossible. It's never been easy. It's not impossible now. It's not easy now. Uh, but there has rarely been a time in human history when that choice carried such dramatic human consequences. Will the FCC feel that democracy is all about protecting the rights of the ordinary citizen? Unregulated radio would result in programming of the lowest common denominator, the rule of the mob. Disorder. Chaos. Anarchy. Don't hate the media. Become the media. Everything is under control. Everything is under control. Everything is under control. Everything is under control. All right, it's Tuesday night. It's six minutes after midnight. <laughs> Everything's under control. Do what you tell me. Fuck you, I won't do what you tell me. Okie dokie, Smokey. Uh, you're in a treat. You're in for a treat tonight, kitties, because uh, we have an interview with the man the New York Times called the most important intellectual alive, uh, the most quoted living author according to the Arts and Sciences Citation Index, and the guy who Jello Biafra said if he was black, he would have been shot by now. Without further ado, give you Noam Chomsky.
Professor Chomsky, um, thank you for taking time out of your busy schedule for this interview. Uh, talk to you. Yeah. Um, I'll just jump right in. Okay. Uh, you used the term libertarian socialist to describe yourself politically, and at one time described your beliefs or convic convictions as being anarchistic. What do you mean when you use the terms anarchist and libertarian socialist, and what's the difference, if any, between the two ideologies? Well, both of them are pretty broad, uh, pretty broad spectra. So they're not; these are not well-defined notions any mm -hmm. more than any others of political discourse. But uh, anarchism has meant all sorts of things, and the the main stream of it, at least in Europe and in part here, has been part of the socialist movement. Uh, in the United States, it's generally it's often had a much more individualistic. Uh, cast, but that's some special thing about the United States. The same is true of the word libertarian. Uh, in the European tradition, it usually just meant something like socialist anarchist, but in the United States, it means uh, 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 advocate of uh, unrestrained capitalism or something like that, kind of the opposite. Uh, so the terms are, I'm using the terms just to sort of locate myself within a tradition, namely the the anarchist, the libertarian wing of the traditional socialist movement, uh, which was very, which was basically mainstream anarchism as well, the anarchism of Kropotkin and Bakunin and uh, um, the Spanish uh, uh, anarcho-syndicalists and so on. Uh, in a general sense, all of these movements have something in common, uh, namely they uh, believe that uh, any authoritarian structure or relationship, whether it's the state or private ownership or uh, relation of parents and children or whatever it may be, uh, any relation of power and hierarchy has a burden of justification. Mm -hmm. uh, it can't just be assumed to be legitimate. It has to demonstrate its legitimacy. Uh, and it has to demonstrate it by showing that uh, something or other, like in the case of parents and children, you can try to demonstrate that uh, children are better off if parents keep them from running across the street into traffic, let's say. Mm -hmm. okay, that's an argument. Uh, but any any kind of authority has to have a justification. Otherwise, it's illegitimate. And if it's illegitimate, which it usually is, uh, it ought to be dismantled and we ought to work towards a world of more freedom and more democracy and more participation and control, uh, less obedience, uh, um, less subordination to others, and so on. That's the general thrust of it. When you start looking at specifics, it goes in all different directions. While we're on the topic of ideologies, uh, it appears Newt Gingrich seems to be adopting a lot of the intolerance and the top-down decision-making structure of Nazi Germany. Is that a fair comparison? Or in other words, what differences, if any, are there between classical fascism and today's uh, advocates of cutbacks, or in their words, structural adjustment? Um, well, I think there are differences and similarities. And uh, some take, say, Newt Gingrich. Mm -hmm. uh, uh, Newt Gingrich stands for something pretty definite, mm -hmm. uh, a powerful state, a, a state that's involved in redistribution, uh, but uh, toward the wealthy. Uh, so you can see that in... Uh, uh, he, he wants He's leading away the effort to cut back any kind of government program that might help the general population, uh, whether it's school children or future generations like environmental concerns or uh, 
parking people or whatever, those people are not his concern. Any programs that are for their benefit have to be cut back. On the other hand, he's very much in favor of government programs, strong, powerful government programs that put money into the pockets of rich people. Uh, so, for example, take his own district, uh, which he represents, uh, he, which is a good place to start. Uh, he represents Cobb County, Georgia, uh, which is a very wealthy suburb of Atlanta. Uh, it's what he calls uh, proudly a uh, Norman Rockwell world of jet planes and fiber optics, uh, where people are supposed to be very conservative and all involved in entrepreneurial values and so on and so forth. Only one slight footnote, they're all on a federal handout. Uh, this uh, county gets more, his district gets more uh, uh, federal subsidies than any suburban county in the country uh, outside of the federal government itself. So it doesn't get as much as, Alexander, you know, as uh, say, Arlington, Virginia, which is part of Washington, uh, where the Pentagon is and so on. But if you move out of the federal government itself, he's tops. He's the biggest welfare freak in the country. Uh, and it's really easy to talk about the entrepreneurial values and, uh, you know, get the nanny state off our back and so on, as long as it's pouring money into your pocket, as it is. Uh, his county, for example, is the corporate headquarters of uh, um, Lockheed, uh, Lockheed Martin, which is uh, a state-subsidized corporation that uh, has, makes the profits are privatized, but the costs are socialized. Uh, and he's right now pushing very hard for it to get a $72 billion uh, contract for F-22s, which, according to Lockheed propaganda, we desperately need uh, because of uh, all these third-world dictators all over the world who are getting advanced aircraft, and we have to defend ourselves. Uh, and who are they getting advanced aircraft from? Well, you know, Lockheed, which is selling them F-16s at public expense uh, so that then we can build F-22s to defend ourselves from the F-16s that we're sending from them, meanwhile putting money into the pockets of Gingrich's rich constituents. Uh, that's jet planes, and it's indeed fiber optics, and it's computers, and so on. Mm -hmm. So the people, the sort of uh, thinking behind Gingrich is expressed probably most clearly by the Heritage Foundation. And just take a look at their budget proposals. Uh, they want to cut everything except, with one exception, the Pentagon, uh, which is the system that uh, funnels public funds into the pockets of uh, high-tech industry uh, and uh, rich... Uh, it's uh, mostly rich constituents. It's a redistributive system that uh, uses the federal government to maintain the state capitalist system in the interest of the wealthy. Right. So he's a, you could call him a uh, advocate of corporate welfare, but how, how does an advocate of corporate welfare today compare with, you know, let's say um, Mussolini or Hitler? of yesteryear, like, are there any meaningful differences between the two yeah, systems? Yeah, there are meaningful differences, okay. but, uh, I mean, these are not the same systems. They have some similarities. Yeah. I mean, the, the German state was uh, strongly supported by major corporate power, uh, though they didn't much like it after it turned out the Nazis had ideas of their own. And, in fact, uh, big American corporate power isn't so happy about a lot of the things happening now either. Uh, they're not happy about the there, there is a strain a strain in the Gingrich army which is sort of right-wing populist but that means they're also against big business and they are against uh, a 
handouts to big corporations. And the big corporations, of course, don't like that. But they also don't like the fanaticism. Uh, the, uh, the Christian fundamentalism is something that scares them a lot. Uh, the corporate executives are mostly what are called liberals, you know, kind of cultural liberals, like uh, they're militantly pro-abortion. Uh, they don't want their kids to be forced to uh, repeat prayers in schools. Uh, they don't like guys running around with assault rifles and so on. Uh, and insofar as that's a segment of the Gingrich constituency, they're very unhappy about it. Gingrich himself is very They like a big, big business. Fortune, is, Fortune magazine's run a couple of polls on this, and they love what Gingrich is up to, I mean, because he's just pouring money into their pockets. Mm-hmm. On the other hand, they don't like him, uh, and they're worried about the people around him. Right. Uh, and that's somewhat reminiscent of the attitudes of big business towards the Nazis in the late 30s, but... Uh, you know, these are different systems. I mean, you don't want to draw the lines too tight. Well, the similarities I was thinking were in the results, especially in the the uh, non-Western or non-industrialized countries, that uh, basically a, a corporate state and a, a fascist state seem to um, be searching for Liebenstrom and... and uh, and you know, at, at the expense of, of many people's lives, and perhaps you know, when you factor um, global warming and other uh, unsustainable industries into the equation, um, it, yeah. it could be at the expense of everybody's life. Yeah, but that's uh, these are the interests of private power. Yeah, I mean that's it, kind of independent of system. Uh, I should say that you know these days or after the Second World War. Uh, people think of fascism as being something that involves, uh, you know, gas chambers and death camps and mass slaughter and so on and so forth. But fascism as a socio-political system was pretty much admired in the West. Uh, Mussolini, for example, was very popular in the West uh, in the 19 across the spectrum. I mean, left liberals liked him. Franklin Roosevelt called him that admirable uh, Italian gentleman, and in fact, the U.S. continued to support him uh, right after the war in, uh, in Ethiopia. Uh, Franco was very popular, Franco-fascism in the West. Uh, in fact, he even won uh, years later, even way after the war, he was uh, gaining, he was being praised by Eisenhower and the Kennedy administration and so on uh, for the wonderful things he did. He was a straight fascist. Uh, Hitler Germany was very popular. Uh, up until the, at least around 37 or so, the State Department, 1937, the State Department was uh, advocating that we support Hitler as what they called a moderate, standing between the extremes of right and left, and if we don't support Hitler, we might have to worry about the masses rising up uh, and uh, maybe with the middle classes supporting them and overthrowing uh, the system that we like. Uh, there was no great opposition to fascism. And in fact, back in those days, uh, you will find books by very mainstream American political economists, uh, like, say, Robert Brady, a very good political economist at Columbia University, wrote a very interesting book, must have been around, I don't know, 1943 or so, called uh, Business as a System of Power, in which he simply described similarities uh, among the various state capitalist countries of the world, uh, Germany, Italy, uh, the United States, uh, England, all of which were adopting, as he pointed out, rather adapted to their own conditions and circumstances, but rather similar policies of trying to uh, 
integrate state power and uh, private power uh, into fascist-like systems with different, you know, different variants. Uh, it became unfashionable to talk like that after the Second World War, but uh, there was a lot to it, and it wasn't considered very strange then. Brady, for example, pretty you know, mainstream Veblenite economist. Yeah, it's a shame they don't teach uh, that um, teach the connections between our systems and classical fascism in uh, oh, elementary school. <laughs> yeah, you can tell it by uh, just looking at investment flows. Uh, after Mussolini took over in Italy and destroyed the parliamentary system instantly and instituted terror and destroyed the labor movement and so on, uh, he was the absolute darling of the American business community. Uh, Italy, investment started pouring into Italy. Uh, was the I think it received the highest flow of investments probably in Europe in the 1920s. Uh, after Hitler took over, the investment flow started to shift to Germany. And in the 30s, Germany received more U.S. investments than any European country outside of England, where, of course, they're historic ties, uh, uh, reflecting uh, general attitudes towards approval of what he was doing. Now, you know, that was pre-Auschwitz, but it wasn't very pretty. No. Um, I wanted to talk about the responsibility, or perhaps the irresponsibility, of reporters and editors within the mass media. For example, the lack of any mention of the attempts of the Iraqi government to negotiate a diplomatic solution to the recent uh, Middle East conflict. Has anyone done an analysis of, of this irresponsibility? Um, you know, a detailed... Uh, analysis of... Uh, an analysis of, of, let's say... On that the, particular issue or in general? Well, in that particular issue first and in general. Well, on the case of... I'm not sure which case... What you're talking I'm about. I'm talking the, about the exclusion of... Iraqi of, negotiation yeah. orders in, after the invasion of Kuwait or the, more uh, recently? Uh, after the invasion of Kuwait. Yeah. Okay, well, I've written a lot about that. Um, uh, in fact, uh, in my book... Uh, Deterring Democracy, which came out right... I had articles on it right away mm -hmm. uh, in Z Magazine, uh, but then have written about it since. There's material on Deterring Democracy. There's more because more has come out on, in a recent book called World Order is Old and New. And the basic story of what happened is that after the invasion of, of Kuwait, um, the, uh, Saddam Hussein apparently realized very fast that he wasn't going to get away with it. Mm -hmm. uh, and within a very short time, he was he was sort of leaking offers uh, about a negotiated settlement, which would involve Iraqi withdrawal, at first with various terms, toward the end with almost no terms. Uh, and the United States didn't want this. In fact, its biggest fear from the very beginning, uh, we know this now, uh, from internal materials that have leaked out internally, that uh, uh, the biggest fear was that Saddam Hussein was going to withdraw and leave a kind of a puppet regime in place, uh, after which the whole Arab world would applaud, as Colin Powell put it in internal meetings about a day or two after the invasion. Uh, in short, that he would duplicate what the United States had just done in Panama, invade the country, leave in a puppet regime. Uh, the only difference is Latin Americans didn't applaud at that time. They screamed bloody murder about it. Uh, but some, essentially, aside from that, aside from the reaction, he would duplicate what the U.S. had just done in Panama, and the U.S. didn't want that. Uh, so they certainly didn't, and they certainly did not want to consider a negotiated settlement. Uh, so information was leaked about it, and it sort of was around the periphery of the press. The mainstream press wouldn't touch it. Uh, and in fact, till the end of the war, uh, to the end of the, the crucial period from August 1990, the invasion, up till January 15th, the actual bombing the next year, that was the crucial period. During that period, the fact of the 
negotiations options was concealed almost totally, not 100%, but you know, 99.9% concealed. New York Times, for example, or the Washington Post never reported any of it. Uh, it was pretty dramatic right at the time in mid-January. Uh, the, late, the polls were being taken all the time about uh, American opinion, and uh, the last polls right before the bombing started, like about January 10th or 11th, showed that the population by about two to one uh, their preferred, the preferred solution by about two to one was uh, uh, Iraqi withdrawal within the context of a general uh, security, a, a, a general um, uh, regional uh, and global meeting about security of the region in which Iraq would take part. Well, you know, the people who came out in favor of that didn't know that Iraq had just made that offer a couple of weeks before and that uh, uh, high State Department officials had said it's serious and negotiable, and the U.S. had flatly rejected it, and the press concealed it. Uh, if people had known that, it wouldn't have been two to one. It probably would have been 20 to one, uh, and uh, the offer would have had to be pursued. Whether these offers were serious or not, we hadn't the slightest way of knowing. The only way you can find out if offers are serious is to try them. Uh, but Washington evidently feared that they were serious, and the press kept quiet about it. Now, that is one of the most extraordinary examples of press subordination to power that I know, uh, and not only is it not reported, but the opposite is claimed. Uh, there is now book after book claiming that this period of uh, leading up to the war from August to January was such a dramatic example of democracy in action with all the options being considered and deliberated in Congress and so on and so forth. The fact is nothing was being considered. The serious questions were being hidden. Uh, the crucial information was being suppressed. Uh, and, you know, even work that's critical of the media about the war generally glosses over all of this. They talk about much more trivial things, like the fact that uh, during the war um, the press was restricted from uh, uh, observing combat on their own. Yeah, that's true, but, you know, maybe it's wrong, but it's pretty minor as compared with these things. Um, was was there any uh, direct conflicts of interest between, let's say, the, the advertisers or the ownership of the New York Times and the Washington Post and their um, ability to, let's say, benefit from a uh, military conflict in the Gulf? Or was it a um, more informal structure of control, let's say, with the Washington Press Corps being manipulated by the White House or something? Well, that's, you know, that goes into a level of detail which we don't have evidence about. Nobody knows what goes on on the inside of private corporations. Right. They don't release documents. No. So we have to speculate. But uh, uh, what's interesting is that this pattern is highly consistent. Uh, uh, it's been demonstrated. This is a pretty dramatic case of it, but the pattern itself has been illustrated in case after case. There's thousands of pages of documentation on this. Mm -hmm. So um, nobody has made a, an analysis of, let's say, what advertisements appear in the uh, New York Times or the Washington Post, if there's oh, yeah. any defense I mean, contractors yeah, or that, oil sure. companies? Oh, yeah, you uh, can do that, but it doesn't really tell you much. Like, for example, I wouldn't be at all surprised if the oil companies were in favor of a negotiated settlement. Oh. That's po quite possible. Right. You know, you, these are things that you, you, you would know only if you had internal records. And remember, these are private tyrannies. Mm -hmm. They're not like governments. Uh, governments have secrets, but at least, you know, more or less democratic governments. Uh, bits and pieces leak out, and ultimately you get a fair amount of declassification. Uh, but you don't get declassification of records from Exxon. These are private tyrannies. These are totalitarian systems.
they don't you, they don't have any public accountability and they don't tell you anything that's why the Gingrich Republican types like them so much because they're when you talk about the analogy to fascism mm-hmm. the real analogy is private corporations right those are totalitarian institutions yeah. we, we don't use the term for them because our ideological system keeps away from economic power and structure but if we were honest about it we would point out that these are basically about as close to totalitarian as any institutions humans have devised actually if you look at their history they came out of the same background as as political fascism Uh, the modern corporations were given their extraordinary rights and powers not that long ago it's early in this century and mostly by courts and lawyers not legislation uh, and it, and the thinking behind it, the intellectual background, is rather similar to uh, what led to Bolshevism and uh, fascism. And they're very similar in form. Totalitarian institutions, unaccountable to the public, and very hierarchic and authoritarian in their internal structure. So you would say that um, whereas some governments are uh, semi-top-down with a little bit of uh, feedback available, uh, classical fascism and corporations share a completely top-down decision-making structure, and in that well, way they're similar? Yeah, completely is too strong even for fascism, oh, okay. but very much so. Yeah. I mean, very much toward in that direction. Like, I mean, take, say, a corporation. Uh, power is vested ultimately in the owners and investors. Uh, control is done by the CEO and the board of directors. Uh, if the investors don't like it, they kick them out. Uh, the uh, uh, the rest of the structure is strictly, pretty, very strictly top down. If you're somewhere inside that system, say a junior manager, uh, you get orders from above and you hand them on down below. And at the bottom, uh, there are people who uh, rent themselves to the place called workers. Uh, they don't have anything to say. Now, you know, there's a little bit of feedback and interchange, but that was true even in Stalinist Russia. Uh, these are about as close to totalitarian as any institutions we know, and they're not small. Uh, they, uh, by now, the top 500 corporations, Fortune 500, uh, control about six, uh, almost two-thirds of American gross domestic product and a very big piece of the world economy. So you're in favor of using the term totalitarian to de- describe corporations. What about the F word? Could you effectively, like, or could you make an argument to say that they're really, uh, yeah, to say well, there's I don't little like or no difference? Use, I, you, I don't like to use the word fascist just because of its connotations. Mm-hmm. See, if we could go back to, say, the 19, the, say, the early, you know, 1940, and describe fascism as a socioeconomic and political system, okay, then it would be a system you could describe. But by now, fascism has the, you know, it brings images of uh, gas chambers and death camps and mass murder and so on. And, of course, that's not true of these other institutions. It may be true of them, but it's not specifically true of these other institutions. So it's just kind of bringing the wrong imagery along with it. And it's become a kind of a, you know, a word of abuse rather than a descriptive term. So probably better avoid it. Okay. Um... Moving on to um, unsustainable systems, uh, it appears that one of the most serious threats to the survival of the human race is the effect uh, fossil fuels is having on our atmosphere. And there's a growing body of evidence that suggests 
certain crops grown for biomass and converted to methanol or ethanol through pyrolysis uh, could replace fossil fuels while at the same time these same crops uh, convert the CO2 or the, the carbon dioxide back into oxygen and could help stop global warming um, combined with a comprehensive energy conservation program. Uh, my question is A. How important is the issue of global warming and uh, B. How does one force the evidence of alternatives uh, to fossil fuels into the mass media uh, who themselves depend upon oil and car companies for their advertising revenue? Well, I don't think anymore that there's very much doubt about the importance of global warming. In fact, uh, at least the, you know, you'll always find doubters, but the overwhelming scientific consensus is that it's a serious problem. Uh, you may have seen uh, today's, what, the 19th? Uh, yesterday, uh, New York Times on the 18th had a front-page story uh, report giving the early version of a draft report that's circulating from, uh, I think, actually a couple of thousand scientists throughout the world, which is being presented to governments. Uh, and these are very mainstream people, you know, major centrists. This is the real scientific establishment. Uh, and it said, yeah, there's a range of uncertainty and error, but there's very strong reason to believe that global warming is taking place and that fossil fuels are making a substantial contribution to it. And they estimate some of the anticipated effects over the next, uh, you know, 100 years or so. And they're fairly... Um, with, with all the uncertainties, they're dangerous enough so that people ought to be very worried about it. Uh, this concern has been growing over the past several decades among serious scientists, uh, and uh, it's reached policymakers to an extent. Uh, it's reached the media to an extent. So as I say, this was a front-page New York Times story. Uh, as to alternatives... Um, that has to be looked at carefully. I mean, all alternative, anything you think of has costs and benefits, and you've got to look carefully at the costs and benefits. Uh, and uh, it has, and uh, so there's two problems about alternatives. One is evaluating them, and the other is getting some information out about them. And uh, uh, the first is basically a technical problem, and the second is a socio-political problem, and it has uh, the features you mentioned. So uh, alternatives to... Uh, fossil fuels are not going to be welcomed by uh, uh, power centers that rely on fossil fuels, and they're powerful. Uh, and the same is true much more generally of, uh, of conservation. So, for example, the, the extensive use of automobiles instead of mass transportation, uh, again, you've got to get the facts straight, but I think it's fairly clear that it's uh, uh, not only uh, harmful to the environment, but it's probably harmful to human life. You know, if people had a choice as to mass transportation, they'd often use it, I'm sure. They don't have a choice because policy has been devised to undermine mass transportation in favor of private uh, private use of automobiles. Uh, so the one of the biggest social engineering projects probably in history uh, was the suburbanization of America, which was a largely state-run policy uh, costing hundreds of billions of dollars. Uh, to try to uh, replace uh, railroads by roads and airplanes and move the populations out of the inner cities. It was done under the 
framework of defense. It was called the National Defense Highway System and so on, but it was a straight state social engineering project, uh, strongly supported, in fact, initiated by uh, uh, oil energy corporations and automobile corporations, and it had a massive effect on American life and American culture and everything else. Uh, and whether that that's... Uh, so the U.S. has let's, some of the worst world railroads in the world, and uh, certainly in the developed world, and a huge use of automobiles, which are, uh, you know, it's, whether this is to people, whether this is pe- you can't really claim this is consumer choice. Uh, there aren't many consumers who enjoy sitting around for uh, two hours during the rush hour trying to get home in their own automobile. If they could get home fast by mass transportation, they would do that. Um, on an issue as important as global warming, do you think it's wise to call attention to the media's conflict of interest through, say, civil disobedience? Um, say, for example, Greenpeace decided to shut down offices of the New York Times until they printed a feature on how the media corporations were totally compromised by their dependence on unsustainable industries, and that this situation would inevitably re- result in the extinction of the human race. Would you go and testify on the protesters' behalf uh, if they all got busted? Yeah, I'm sure I would, but as to whether the that would be independent of my own tactical judgment about it, whether it's a wise thing to do. Right. I, I've been involved in civil disobedience for many, many years, yeah. uh, and uh, on my own, and uh, I've often initiated things and uh, certainly testified for others. But you know, I, I, in my view, these are not moral questions. These are tactic. Well, they're mor- I mean, they're not questions of principle. They're right. questions of tactics, and it's usually questions of tactics that have moral significance, which you have to ask when you undertake civil disobedience, or for that matter, any other action, is what the consequences are. Mm -hmm. So uh, if civil disobedience has the consequence of bringing up, of increasing awareness and understanding and getting other people to try to do things that they might not otherwise have done and so on, if that's its likely consequence, it's justified. If the likely consequence of civil disobedience is to build up opposition and antagonism and to strengthen power centers and so on, well, then it was the wrong tactic. Uh, and these are hard questions. I don't, you know, pretend to have any great insight into them, and my own tactical judgments have often been wrong over the years. But uh, those are the questions you have to ask. There's no general answer. Yeah, it, it seems to me the only way to answer those questions is to attempt it, and and it also seems to me I haven't seen too many attempts at um, actual civil disobedience aimed at the media itself, perhaps uh, fear of, of being ignored or shut out by the same media, um, but it, it seems like a worthwhile um, I mean, it's worth thinking about, you know, but you don't just attempt it, you think about it. Yeah. Uh, for one thing, in a general point about any kind of civil disobedience, at least in my opinion, is that uh, you want to make sure that people are going to understand it the way you want them to understand it, not the way it's going to be presented by somebody else. And that means a lot of preparatory work. Right. Um, okay, moving on from the depressing prospects of our unsustainable society and its internally flawed communication system, I'd like to ask you about attempts at more sustainable societies, for example, Spain, uh, during the Spanish Civil War. How did decisions manage to be made by sizable portions of the population without politicians and employers to, to, to make them? Well, this was not a very long experiment. It lasted about a year before it was smashed, uh, mostly by the communists, I should say, with the backing of the West and the fascists. Uh, but uh, there, there's a 
variant all over the place. It had a very varied forms. Uh, in Catalonia, which was a fairly industrialized area, uh, the uh, industrial centers were, to a substantial extent, uh, run by workers' committees and apparently pretty effectively. Uh, throughout large areas like Aragon, there were hundreds of collectives uh, of varying sorts, some extremely poor, some fairly well-off. Uh, with uh, They developed, uh, again, mostly local committees in one or another form. Uh, federations were set up among them. Uh, the There's a pretty general agreement, even by people who are hostile, that they were reasonably successful economically under very harsh conditions. Uh, and uh, they certainly had a lot of, uh, enormous amount of popular support. That's why such violence was needed in order to destroy them. Uh, there's, there's a lot of documents from the collectives themselves. Uh, for a long time, they were only in Spanish and French. I wrote about this about, I don't know, 35 years ago, I guess. And then I used to, I could, I could only use the original documents, which I'd picked up when I was a kid at the time, in around 1940. But by now, the documents have been published, even in English. Uh, there's a book on uh, workers' collectives in Spain, which is just documents from the collectives themselves. Uh, published, edited by Sam Dolgoff a couple of years ago, and there's a fairly substantial, there's a pretty good literature on on it from many points of view. A lot of people think it was terrible. A lot of people like it, but uh, a lot of different things were tried. Uh, they were basically participatory and uh, um, peasant and worker committees of one sort or another, with uh, federal structures being evolved. But it was in the midst of a war, uh, and a lot of the anarchist leadership just joined the government. Uh, either for power reasons or because they felt it was necessary to fight the war first, uh, which led to lots of conflict. Uh, many of the anarchist writers, like Vernon Richards is a famous one, British anarchist, were bitterly critical of this right at the beginning and said it would destroy the revolution. And uh, uh, Well, you know, it can go on and on, but it was a complicated period, and uh, uh, it's hard to know whether it proves that a more democratic society could run, but it's interesting evidence. It's probably the major example of an anarchist success. Right. So you would you go so far as to say that um, one of the important mistakes we learned or we could learn from the Spanish Civil War was not to give up the uh, bottom-up decision-making structures when you need or feel the need for more efficiency? Um, well, I don't think that more efficiency was the issue because they were pretty efficient. The question was defense against fascism. The question was, do we fight the war or do we fight the revolution? That was the real question that people were facing. Uh, and uh, one point of view was, well, you fight the war by fighting the revolution. So one of the leading anarchists, who was in fact murdered probably by the communists, uh, an Italian anarchist, Camilo Berneri, who was in Spain, uh, his position, which I thought was pretty sensible, frankly, although a lot of others don't, uh, was that uh, uh, the way to fight the war against Franco was not by relying on Russia and big armies and so on and so forth, was, but rather by a guerrilla struggle in Spain and a political struggle in North Africa. Now, that was quite crucial because Franco's armies were brought over uh, from North Africa. They were more, uh, Moroccan mercenaries to a large extent. 
and Bernary's uh, idea was that uh, the uh, Span that the Spanish left should try to make common cause with uh, these very people who were fighting against colonialism in their own countries. Remember, North Africa was colonized at that time, uh, and indeed the leading uh, the leader of the uh, North African guerrilla movement, Abdel Krim, who had only recently been suppressed, uh, he in fact even offered to uh, start up guerrilla activities behind the Franco lines in North Africa, which might well have undermined the uh, Franco armies. You know, these are after all, you know, people, they might want to fight for land reform and justice in their own societies instead of attacking Spain. Uh, well, that was, I think, not an implausible suggestion. It never got the first base because the communists who were pretty dominant, uh, their main interest, Stalin's, they were following Stalin's orders, was to create good relations with the West. They were interested in Russia's relations with the West. They didn't, they hated the Spanish Revolution like poison, and they didn't, certainly didn't care much about the Spanish Civil War, uh, except insofar as it had to do with Russia's foreign relations. And they knew perfectly well that the West would go berserk if there were uh, uh, revolutions initiated in North Africa and the British and French colonies. So that was suppressed. But uh, from the point of view of winning the war, it might have been the right way to do it. Uh, so fighting the war and fighting the revolution are not necessarily opposite, uh, you know, opposing choices, but they're complicated choices, and I don't think one can be glib about it. No. It's easy to talk from here. You know, they were right in the middle of it. Yeah, we have the offer. We have the opportunity. Uh, we can sort of say, yeah, here's what you should have done. But yeah. you know, when you got people shooting at you, you <laughs> don't have those choices. No doubt. Um, jumping ahead 30 years to the 60s, um, could you discuss briefly the uh, the events of May 1968 in Paris? What happened, and and what was the um, was the decision making structure they adopted, um, anarchist or libertarian socialist in nature? Well, you know, it was so brief and so quirky that it's kind of hard to judge. I have to tell you, frankly, at the time I was not all that excited about it. I mean, there was something good about it. There was, there was, uh, there were, uh, there were efforts by workers and by students to sort of, you know, take control of their own affairs, and that parts to the good. But there was an awful lot of play acting, in my opinion, uh, and posturing, uh, and it was suppressed very quickly with the assistance of the Communist Party, as usual. Uh, so it's kind of hard to say. I mean, it, it had a kind of a socio-cultural effect, but I was... I mean, maybe my judgment was wrong, I don't know. But my own judgment was I wasn't all that excited uh, about all the 68 events, which were... That was kind of like the freaky side of the movement in many ways. had good features, but uh, I think I thought a lot of negative ones, too. Um. I'm, I'm not familiar with the, the negative side. Uh, from what I understand, uh, the students had gathered together and attempted a, a form of collective decision-making, whereas anybody could address the... Yeah, that part's nice, but yeah. it was but it was very... A lot of it was very personalized. You know, let's make love and smoke pot and listen to music and everybody will be happy. Well, that's not the way things work. Now, that's, that's a caricature. It, it lacked a, a work ethic? Hmm? In, in other words, work ethic is a very serious matter. I mean, I don't. I'm not opposed to the work ethic. In fact, I think here I disagree with a lot of people. But in my view, one of the most uh, one of the most wonderful things in a person's life is the uh, is the opportunity to do constructive, creative work. Right uh, here.
there I really go along with classical liberalism, uh, which held that uh, a person's basic needs are to inquire and create and discover and produce on your own terms, of course, mm-hmm. not under order, not under command, but out of your own initiative. So I think that all of that, um, you know, that's, I think that's great. If people had a chance to work, I think they'd love it. Right. Re- the work means something you do out of love, you know, mm-hmm. not out of need or right. under command. But but it was it was too mixed up with with uh, there was a the lot exaltation of, of personal freedom. Uh, was, well, you know, p- personal f- personal self indulgence. Mm. That was a large part of it. I don't I don't want to exaggerate. I mean, there there were it was a very mixed and complicated thing with mm-hmm. many different aspects. Some of which I thought were okay, some not. And it was over so fast. It was you know it's hard to make a judgment about. It. Okay. Um, jumping ahead, another th- open microphones at demonstrations and rallies where participants and even opponents uh, can address the group. And does it does it add to the the democratic uh, nature of the structure? Does it interfere with with um, the efficiency, as some I guess communists would like to uh, argue? What's your perspective on open microphones? Well. In general, I'm, a, I'm in favor of it, but that's a general principle, and you really have to judge the cases. I mean, if having open microphones uh, is, if the circumstances are such that open microphones do nothing but cause everything to collapse so that people cannot do what they want, which, remember, there's, there's, there's conflicting commitments. So on the one hand, there's a common effort uh, to act with solidarity and mutual support and so on to achieve some result. On the other hand, there's an interest in the value of allowing f- the freest individual expression, and those are not always consistent with one another. Uh, human life is a complicated affair. Our value, we can hold various values, and they're not always consistent, and we have to make choices between them. Um, and I don't, again, it's, it's kind of like the question of civil disobedience. I don't think you can give a general answer. You have to make judgments based on the circumstances and how the values that you uphold can be maximized under given circumstances and often with conflicts, because they're often in conflict. Okay, well, let, let's say there's a general attitude within the participants itself, and then there's been discussion that says at a particular moment uh, an open mic would not be a good thing. Are there any other curbs on power that could maintain the democratic nature of the the demonstration rally or community while at the same time, um, you know, not having an open microphone? Are there any other curbs on power? Do you know what I'm trying to ask? Yeah, I mean, you know, for example, if... Uh I, I suppose there's a demonstration, mm-hmm. and suppose some group is trying to disrupt it by violence. Right. And suppose you stop them. Mm-hmm. Well, that's the use of power. I'm, I'm more concerned with um, a curb on power on perhaps the steering committees that seem to evolve and, and, well, and you know, here make decisions in their own interest rather than in the interest of their constituents. It often can be. On the other hand, sometimes power is democratically delegated on the condition of recall. Yeah, you know, and Al- almost there, instant I, I recall. I don't think that there can be a general answer to this. No. But you're quite right in pointing to the fact that steering committees and coordinators have a kind of an institutional drive to amass more power to themselves, and that you've got to watch out for. Yeah. On the other hand, that's not to say you should never delegate authority to do anything. No. If we did that, we'd be 
totally uh, uh, incapable of acting at all. Right. So you make choices and decisions. Right. Um, I mean, you know, life doesn't have simple solutions. No, it doesn't. It doesn't. In the film Manufacturing Consent, um, there's some old TV footage with you debating William F. Buckley Jr. on Firing Line, a television program. Buckley is apparently holding a button in his hand, and whenever his argument becomes weak, he presses the button and the network cuts to a commercial. Yeah, I noticed that while I was on. <laughs> I bet. Uh, if if there were no commercials and, and he didn't have the button to hide behind, uh, would there be... Could he defend his, his right-wing opinions? Uh, um, no, I'm not the one to pass judgment on that. Well, okay. But I mean, I don't think so. I mean, y yes, in a way. But, but I mean, I think you can def you can defend almost anything right. if you're slick enough yeah. and there's not enough time and uh, uh, you, you you know debaters' tricks and so on. Right. I mean, there's virtually nothing that you couldn't that that that's. I mean, take say debating. Right. You know, which which I think is one of the dumbest human activities that there is. But formal debating. Okay. Well, you know, in formal debating, uh, good. Debating teams are trained to take both sides of an argument. Right? That's what a formal debate is. You're supposed to be able to defend both sides of the argument. And I don't think it's very hard to do. You know, within that, uh, within a controlled format, there's almost nothing you can't defend uh, with the right sort of tricks and with uh, uh, you don't have to present that much evidence and uh, you know you can say things that there's no way to challenge and so on and so forth. So yeah, sure, you can probably defend anything in a brief span of time with uh, enough uh, uh, limitations on how far you can go. But let's say you created, or the community created, an accessible, level playing field, debate-style television program with uh, enough time, let's two or three hours, to go into the issues in depth. Yeah. Could that serve as a cornerstone, in, in effect, of a, a direct democracy? Sure, I think that'd be terrific. And so anyway, I would question the debate style, however. Well, okay, not debate... There's some, so there's something phony about the idea of debates. Mm -hmm. I mean, an, a debate is based on the principle that you don't change your mind. Like, if you and I were to have a debate, yeah. uh, that would mean I stand up for X and you stand up for not X, and we're not allowed to change our minds. Like, in a debate, I'm not allowed to say, hey, that was a good point. I think maybe you're right. I'll change my mind about that. You're not allowed to do that in a debate. What you have to do is hold on to your position no matter what. And that's just irrational. Right. So you know? perhaps a talk show or a something. Discussion, discussions, discussions make sense. Larry King, so. in effect. Well, discussions make sense. Yeah. And sure, the freer they are and the broader they are and the more views get expressed and the more opportunities there are to pursue things in some depth, the better it is. Right. Uh, but you have to be able to pursue them. You know, if it's uh, if thing, one of the standard tricks of American uh, media, mm -hmm. they've, they've even invented a word for it. I didn't know this until a couple of years ago when I heard it from the producer of uh, Nightline, I think. But they have a word called concision. Uh, which I'd never heard before, but it means just what you'd expect, uh, that things have to be concise. Uh, you're only allowed on if you can meet the condition of concision, meaning make short, snappy statements, you know, uh, between two commercials, basically. Well, that's a terrific technique for thought control, and I presume that's why it's been developed. I mean, if you have to say short, snappy things, you can only replete, repeat things everybody agrees with. Try to say something that's a little bit controversial, and people have a right to ask you, what do you mean by that? And then comes, uh, thank you, Mr. So-and-so, you know. Yeah, newspapers are adopting the... The newspapers are the same. The concision thing while they're downsizing or, or, or yeah. shrinking oh, their... You know, at best, they're very, very limited. Yeah. Uh, it's very rare to see a, you know, a 
2,000-word article in a, in a newspaper. Uh, but uh, uh, here, I mean, it's quite different. You know, this country, uh, the United States is a little different than other countries in this respect, so they're going our way. Uh, but uh, these conditions, especially in the man, in the popular media and the in the radio and television are extreme and uh, in the newspapers quite a lot. They are just techniques of thought control alongside of restricting the range of things. Okay. Um, uh, what would happen to people like, let's say, Henry Kissinger or George Bush in a direct democracy? Would the world vote to have them executed as dangerous psychopaths or, or would we well, you know, place them under surveillance? Well, I'm against the death penalty. No, myself, so, I. so I would not be in favor of executing them, but uh, I, I, dangerous psychopaths, I don't know. I mean, I, my, my suspicion is that they would sort of drift into the margins and be insignificant in a free society. Yeah. Well, would, how would you deal with, let's say, the anger of, of Panamanians or, or some you know, Chileans or some of the people who's, who's been bombed and had their, their children taken away from them? Um, how would you argue to, to let our, our masters continue on, you know, live, or serve some sort of uh, penance for their well, obvious Well, this is like asking, should, should there be international war crimes trials? Yeah. Like right now, there are international war crimes tribunals going on for uh, uh, for Serbians. That's reasonable. I think there shouldn't be imp impunity for crimes, but it's also deeply dishonest because uh, we don't subject our own war criminals to the same conditions. And if we're at all serious, we should. So take say Henry Kissinger. I mean, uh, you know, he's got a list of war crimes a mile long. And if we're going to say yes, there shouldn't be impunity, then fine. Let's not have impunity. Let's start at home, where we can we don't have to go capture the people. Right now, is is there a conscious fear among elites? You know, echoes of the guillotine, which prevents them from. No, it's not that. They won't even consider it. No. I mean, take say the Viet. You know, this is a deeply indoctrinated society. Yeah. Uh, take say the Vietnam War. Right. I mean, that led to about four million people killed. That's fairly impressive, even by 20th century standards. Three countries totally ruined. I mean, forget about punishment. Have you ever heard an apology for it? Did anybody apologize for the Vietnam War? No, it's inconceivable. The United States doesn't make apologies. We beat people up. We don't apologize. Uh, McNamara just wrote a book which... All right, uh, we're just going to be back with Noam in one second. Uh, the tape ran out at that point. He talked about uh, McNamara apologizing, or not apologizing, uh, apologizing basically to the American public uh, for the Vietnam War and not the Vietnamese people. And he continues along that line. So enjoy the last part of the interview. Time that McNamara's book was all over the front page, you know, big right before that. Uh, David Hackworth, who's the uh, most decorated American veteran, as you may know, you know, a famous military officer who fought in Vietnam. He fought in the Mekong Delta in the South. Uh, he went back to visit the place, the battlegrounds where he fought, and he met the he went to the villages of uh, where he had fought, and he met the commanders, those who were still alive, and the combatants on the other side, South Vietnamese. And he wrote a very interesting article in Newsweek, very interesting, 
very humane, very uh, simple, straightforward, honorable, honest. I mean, um, you know, kind of a, you know a, a different galaxy from the stuff that you read about in the uh, among among respectable, educated intellectuals. Just a different world for McNamara. I mean, he first of all he understood that he was fighting South Vietnamese. McNamara never seems to have been able to get himself to understand that. He knows that he was fighting a war against the South Vietnamese. He speaks of his great respect for the South Vietnamese commanders, the so-called Viet Cong, who he met with and who, you know, made friends with one another after having fought bitterly. He describes visit going to the, what he calls the center of the revolution, a place where he fought. He was with the Ninth Division, which is very brutal, incidentally. Uh, and... Uh, he describes uh, the village that this guy lives. I don't know. It was a village of 75,000 people. Most of them were killed. Most, all of his family were killed. Uh, he describes his great respect for the combatants on the other side and his utter contempt for the leaders in the United States who thought that they could destroy uh, people's uh, struggle for independence with bombs. Well, you know, that's a different moral universe from... Uh, uh, the one you get, and I was surprised to see it in Newsweek, but it's a different moral universe from the one that dominates discussion here. We don't concede, uh, uh, respectable people here don't concede that we did anything wrong or could do anything wrong. In fact, even more amazing, it's the Vietnamese who are guilty. The moral issue remaining from the war is what they did to us, not what we did to them. I mean, that's pretty astonishing. I don't know if there's a historical analog to this. Let, let's say you or somebody successfully managed to force evidence of uh, perhaps the U.S. bombing of South Vietnam onto the front page of the New York Times, and there was a great uproar about that. Um, Should there be war crimes? Well, after yeah, the war, yeah, after the war crimes tribunal. So, um, as I don't know how exactly to put this, but to offer to cooperate with those who, who who have committed these crimes on our behalf. Um, can they we, commit them on my behalf. Well, not on my behalf either. I wasn't alive at the time, but... Um, they it, certainly didn't commit them on behalf of... They didn't commit them on behalf of David Hackworth. He's no. the first to tell you that. Nor did they commit them on behalf of the great majority of the American people who were opposed to it. Yeah. But uh, they committed them on the behalf of the people they serve and the power interests they serve, not us. But but you also say that that uh, the public has a very serious burn, burden of guilt in that we we no, allow we, we stand by and al yeah, allow. But I blame myself too. You know? Yeah. No, I'm not blaming other people. No, no, no. I'm, but I'm saying, in 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 terms of our collective guilt, could we possibly offer, you know, penance or sure, some sort of purgatory rather? Look, we ought to pay reparations. Yeah. I mean, Germany pays reparations to Jews. Yeah. No reason why we shouldn't pay reparations to Vietnamese and Nicaraguans and Guatemalans and Chileans and quite a lot of others. Yeah. I guess my question is, can we offer something to those who presently hold power to just as a, a way out without them dying and us dying in that, look, if you hand power over to people in general and communities and collective decision-making, bottom-up decision-making, uh, we won't turn around and put you to death for your crimes. We'll just well, say that everybody... They should not have a choice. You know, a, a democratic revolution does not ask rulers to please give up power and then we'll be nice to you. No. 
what it says is, look, it's a value to democratize, and we're going to take power, right. and you can just be among us, period. But That's your choice. Right before we take power, uh, is it possible to avoid some bloodshed by... I don't know. It depends whether people with power resist the democracy. Right. That's in the, the the decision about violence is in the hands of those with power. Yes. I mean, look, any revolutionary who's even got his head screwed on would rather have it be peaceful. Yeah, yeah. Okay. I mean, if people won't abandon their own privilege and power without violence, well, okay, you defend yourself. Right, right. Um, moving to an, sort of an abstract question, not quite... Uh, you know, you can speculate on the answers to this, but uh, Jared Wynn Stanley, I believe that's how you pronounce his name, of the Diggers, you know, the er early Democrats in England, uh, once speculated that the ability to reason was the kingdom of God within man. And, and Gandhi said something to the same effect, that uh, God is reason, uh, or something like that. Uh, would it be possible to offer reason as a replacement for the the list of do's and don'ts that most organized religions have to offer, or are, are human beings too comfortable or too superstitious or too isolated to to assume responsibility for their actions and adopt uh, reason as a, as a basis for decision making rather than what God tells you to do? Well, uh, look, I'm personally like a child of the Enlightenment. I'm yeah. an all in favor of uh, being as reasonable as we can and uh, not simply accepting arbitrary authoritarian doctrines from wherever they come. Notice, remember, God doesn't tell you to do anything. People yeah. do. Yeah. They may say they're talking in the name of God, but uh, you know, God doesn't talk to people. Uh, so what is called God's commandments is people's commandments that mm -hmm. uh, are assigned to God as an authority. Uh, and I don't see any reason to follow any arbitrary commandment. Now, on the other hand, even the most, you know, the most devoted, uh, the people most devoted to reason recognized something which is true, uh, and we should recognize it too. It was put rather well by one major Enlightenment figure, David Hume, who pointed out that reason is the slave of the passions, meaning we can reason, but we reason within our framework of instincts and desires and hopes and concerns and so on. We can try to analyze them, and we should be willing to evaluate them and question them, but we can't get rid of them. They're there, uh, and uh, reason is an is an instrument with limited power that operates within a framework of other dominant factors uh, that we should try to understand, but we cannot extricate ourselves from. So it's not that reason is like a universal instrument that can solve every problem. It can't. There are very few things that we know how to reason about seriously. We don't understand much. It's important to remember that not much is understood. I mean, even in the natural sciences, when you get, you know, when you get beyond, say, big molecules, understanding drops off pretty fast. When you get to questions of human interest and concern, you know, how should people relate to one another, or how should children be brought up, or what should societies be like, and so on, we're operating mostly on the basis of intuition and instinct and experience and judgment, and we naturally, one should try to be as reasonable as one can, and should always be ready to question dogma, uh, but also have an honest understanding of the limits of our understanding, which are considerable. Okay, um, we're getting to just about the end of 
of our time. Um, I was wondering if I could ask you a couple of informal questions and then ask you for a station identification for our, our fund drive here. Yeah. Okay. Um, the, the, the informal question are, um, have you ever heard of uh, the television program TV Nation at all? Uh, no, but I don't know much about <laughs> television. I'm kind of out of the popular culture. Right. Um, I was, we, there was a bunch of us wondering if, if uh, let's say, a, a contemporary film director such as uh, Oliver Stone or Spike Lee approached you and asked you to serve as a consultant for a, a major motion picture on, say, uh, the bombing of South Vietnam or, or Angola, you know, in, in Spike Lee's case, uh, w would you be interested in, in doing anything like that? Acting as a consultant. Sure, if I know anything that could be useful, I'll tell, you know, I'll be glad to help anybody. Right. Because that, that amount of exposure, I mean, there are video stores in, in small 200 pre-people towns in Mexico, so it would it would reach a... No, I, I'm all in favor of people doing that kind of thing. It's just that I'm no good at it. <laughs> well, in uh, fact, I think it's terrifically important, just not my kind of thing. Well, you are you are a very important resource for that sort of yeah, activity. Yeah, if I could help. I mean, I often do, in fact, but if I can, sure, I'd be glad to. Okay. Well, then, thank you very much, Professor Chomsky, for okay. for your time. And if you Thanks could, to talk to you. yeah, if you could just say uh, hi, oh, this okay. is hi, this yeah, is Noam Chomsky. Yeah, give me the details. What's the? Uh, well, we're just uh, every year we. Um, no, no, I mean what? Uh, the, oh, you know, all you have to say is. Um, uh, what's? I don't even know the name of the station. Oh, it's CJSR in Edmonton. CJ. C J S R. S like in sister. Yeah. S. C J S R. In Edmonton. In Edmonton. Yeah. And uh, th that you know. Public radio needs to be supported, this et cetera, public, et cetera. It's a public radio. It's a community. It's a university slash volunteer community radio yeah. station. Everybody has access to it. So. Okay. You want me to just say something? Yep. Okay. Uh, this is Noam Chomsky speaking. I'm, uh, I've uh, just completed a very interesting for me interview on CJSR uh, and would like to uh, ask people to... Uh, do what they can to support public radio uh, volunteer stations in Edmonton and everywhere. It's a major factor in uh, breaking through the authoritarian structures of our society and making it a more free and democratic place for all of us. Fantastic. Thank you very much, and uh, carry on with your good work. Okay, good luck to you. Yeah. Yep. Talk to you later. Good to talk to you. Yep. Yep, bye. bye.
Oh yeah. We'll be right back to Everything's Under Control after these important announcements. the Riverview Lounge, now featuring a live jazz jam. Monday, Wednesday, starting at 9 p.m. Plus, Friday and Saturday, the lounge is open until midnight. Great music, combined with the best view in the city. That's the Riverview Lounge, located on 10143 Saskatchewan Drive. One fifteen in the morning, you're listening to CJSR FM 88.5, cable 104.7, as far damn left as you can get on your FM dial. And that was the plan from the very inception. I'm here with uh, my delicious accomplice, Yana, plotting the overthrow of all our masters. <laughs> yeah, and uh, engaging in certain indulgences at the same time. Uh, a good balance of uh, hedonism. hedonism and productive work. Exactly. That's that's the recipe for, if not uh, everlasting heaven, at least a swell time. That's our recipe for happy living. Yeah, exactly. So... Uh, Let's see, what well, you've been listening to, well, you heard Green Day off of Dookie and Longview. I don't know why I played that. I just felt compelled. I know everybody's heard it a billion times. I especially thought, on this show. Especially on this show. But I thought, hey, one more time can't hurt. In fact, I felt a little overindulgent today being my last show for at least eight or nine months. I'm uh, heading off to Hedonism uh, City Central, Vancouver, land of the decriminalized marijuana. And uh, I'm just. What are you going to do over there, Dave? I'm going to Disneyland. I'm going to Gangeland. I'm going to be smoking bodacious reefers all day long. Did you get a job or something? Yeah, I got a job at Hemp BC. Come visit us and have a hoot off the vaporizer at 420 p.m. That's the place where you can smoke right in the store. One of the places you can smoke. Anyway, yeah, oh, it's the more freedom than one could contemplate. Oh, it's like Amsterdam, Coover. Can anyone imagine a better do- job for <laughs> David Malmolevine? Uh, David Malmolevine can't. Anyway, I'm I'm li- really looking forward to this change of scene. I'll be missing the winter too. Ha <laughs> ha. So, but but enough enough indulgences. That was uh uh well, 
that was an interview with Noam Chomsky I did today uh, over the phone. He was hanging around MIT, and uh, I had, he penciled me into his busy schedule, so it was very nice. Uh, I learned a lot. Um, well, you know, some of the stuff I'm just going to have to chew on for a while and, and you know, kind of fi- figure out one way or another how exactly I'm going to uh, incorporate such information into my belief system. But overall, I learned a heck of a lot just talking to him for an hour and 11 minutes or whatever it was. And I hope uh, you guys did too. Yeah, I hope it inspires you to uh, um, inquiries of your own into this or that, you know, and to action action too it's not just good sit around uh in our uh, smoking jackets uh <laughs> mulling over whether uh, you know this or that point was correct it's like armchair anarchist what to do with the information yes I'll apply it absolutely make it real experiment make it exist first hand first hand experience visceral experience go for it Anyway, yeah, that, here's a good one. I read this off this anarchist uh, literature from uh, England. That uh, the, I believe it was the Raven, uh, this anarchist publication. And there was this nice quote said, "The best way to help somebody else's revolution is to start your own." So that's what I encourage all my listeners to do: is start their own personal revolution. Uh, power shifting and uh, power spreading as it were spread that power wide anyway you make it sound so dirty (laughs) well baby let's get down to some democracy yeah (laughs) anyway um what are you what are we gonna listen to next I guess that is the question of the day the answer is another Noam Chomsky interview from a CJSR personality yes it was two years ago give or take another year or two maybe yeah yeah March of 93 that our own minister Faust did an interview with Noam Chomsky uh, for his show um, I believe it was the Terror Dome. He played it on. And without further ado, here is once again Noam Chomsky, this time interviewed by Minister Faust. First of all, uh, Professor, uh, thank you very much for attending the interview. And uh, I wanted to know, to begin with, um, we've heard a lot here in Canada about the military cuts that the Clinton administration is proposing. And first off, I'd like to know if we can expect that they're for real in any in any realistic uh, sense. And second, if they are real at all, um, in what way does this conform to the expectations of the uh, propaganda model or run contrary to it? Uh, there are certain military cuts. I mean, they're not dramatic. Uh, but they do exist, and I think they'll continue. They have been going on. In fact, the military spending, uh, the, the, the last great increase in military spending, I mean, there, you know, this goes in waves, uh, was proposed by the Carter administration, but they didn't have quite enough clout to push it through. Uh, and then it was implemented by the Reagan administration with uh, not very great changes. Uh, it peaked around the mid-'80s. 
it then started leveling off and declining. Uh, it declined further in the Bush years, and it's uh, continuing that trajectory in the Clinton years. Now, decline still means leaving it the, you know, the major item in the federal budget and very substantial. Uh, so decline is a kind of a relative word. Uh, it's, these things happen for all kinds of reasons. Uh, uh, in large, one substantial reason, well, there have been two major uh, purposes, three major purposes to the military system, I would say, over the past, say, you know, 50 years since the Second World War. Uh, one has, the, it, it is primarily, uh, as a military force, it's intended for intervention, third world intervention. Uh, and that continues, it continues to be uh, necessary and available for third world intervention. Now, there's some problems there, but they're not military problems. The problem is that the domestic population won't tolerate it any longer. Uh, so though the forces are still being maintained and will be used in duress, uh, there's heavy domestic constraints on their use. They can't use them the way they were able to in past years. That was the reason for all the uh, clandestine uh, uh, international terror to which the Reaganites had to resort in the 1980s instead of direct you know, sending the Marines to El Salvador and Nicaragua and the, you know, bombing Nicaragua. The traditional methods just weren't available. Uh, and that continues. All right, so, so point one is intervention forces directed at the third world, primarily at the Middle East, which is the most important area and always has been. Now, that'll continue, though, their constraints on its use. Now, the second goal, the purpose of the Pentagon is related to that. Uh, it is, as has been explained quite openly, in fact, even publicly, uh, the Pentagon system is necessary to provide an umbrella or a shield uh, a very intimidating posture, which keeps any any but any outsider away, if the United States chooses to intervene. So, as the, as was put even by say Carter administration officials, the head of the Defense Department there, uh, Harold Brown, uh, the uh, Pentagon, the in, the nuclear system, you know, the nuclear weapons and missiles and so on, provide a nuclear umbrella within behind which the United States can. With, uh, under which the United States can uh, uh, carry out, uh, conduct its uh, policies by conventional means. That's a fancy way of saying the Reaganites said the same thing as has everyone all the way back. It's a fancy way of saying that we must maintain an intimidating posture to keep anyone from interfering uh, with uh, intervention if we choose to carry it out. Now, the U.S. is a global power, so it intervenes all over the world. And that means it intervenes in places where it doesn't have a conventional force advantage, uh, and therefore has to be very intimidating to keep anybody out of the way. Well, the main deterrent force over the years has been Russia, uh, and part of a substantial re the second major reason for the Pentagon system was to provide a sufficiently intimidating posture so the Russians wouldn't be inclined to intervene to deter U.S aggression or subversion or intervention. Well, that purpose is much less necessary than before. I mean, not zero, but much less than before because that deterrent has disappeared. And once the deterrent disappears, you don't have to, you don't have, to have as much of a shield to uh, protect yourself from it to carry out conventional purposes. So that's a, a real reason for a, a 
some kind of decline in Pentagon force uh, in the Pentagon, uh, the whole Pentagon system. Right. Now, uh, so, now the third reason for the Pentagon is quite different. Uh, that's a domestic economic reason. Uh, the Pentagon has been since the 1940s uh, the device by which the state has organized a public subsidy, a taxpayer subsidy, uh, to advanced industry. So the reason we have, say, computers uh, is because uh, the Pentagon, uh, and by the Pentagon I, I want to include NASA, you know, the Space Agency, and the Department of Energy, which produces nuclear weapons and so on, the whole complex. Yes. Uh, the Pentagon system uh, uh, subsidized research and development for computers and in fact paid the entire cost of them and, and provided a kind of a state guaranteed market for anything that was unmarketable. Now in the 1950s when computers were just big and clumsy and unmarketable, the public paid about 100% of the costs of development and purchase through the Pentagon system. In the 1960s when they became marketable, that percentage declined for about 50% of a public subsidy. And in the 1980s when there were moves to uh, you know new what's called fifth generation computers new advanced computers uh the public share went up again that was part of the purpose of reagan's star wars program to subsidize these developments and it's not just computers i mean it's all of electronics uh, aeronautics the whole metallurgical industry that that uh, contributes to uh, aeronautics and so on there's been a huge stimulus to the economy uh, it's a. It's been in fact. I mean, nobody believes in the free market or capitalism or any of that kind of stuff. That's that's for poor people to allow them to be robbed. Uh, the rich countries all have industrial policies of one or another to ensure that the state supports private power and private wealth. Now, the Pentagon system has been the way in which this has been done overwhelmingly in the United States, and that uh, is now declining for two major reasons. One reason is that the pretext, that what was used to frighten the public into pay for it, into paying for it, was that the Russians are coming. Well, for the last 10 years, it's been pretty obvious the Russians aren't coming. Uh, so it's been harder to sell the system, and for that reason, it's declining. Uh, another reason, even more fundamental, is that the cutting edge of advanced industry is shifting to biology-based industry technology and genetic engineering and so on, and that you couldn't mask behind the Pentagon anyway. So there's much more open discussion of industrial policy these days, and that's another reason for the partial decline of the Pentagon budget. Yes, well, returning for a moment to uh, the question of uh, military intervention, uh, you've commented in a few places, and I think many many observers have been quite surprised uh, by your conclusion that there'll be fewer and fewer military interventions because of the uh, drying up political uh, or popular approval for such uh, action. Um, how do uh, Panama and uh, Libya and Iraq fit into this? I, I realize well, that you have... fit in very well, in fact. Yes. Uh, in the case of Pixley, Libya, uh, there's been a lot of saber-rattling about Libya, uh, but the only military intervention has been very fast. Uh, like the bomb Tripoli and Benghazi, uh, but that's a couple of hours. I mean, a couple of hours of intervention they can still carry off after demonizing, uh, you know, someone and making everybody cower. Remember how frightened the American population was at that time. That was kind of a joke in Europe. The whole tourist industry in Europe collapsed that year, literally. 
because Americans were too frightened to travel to Europe because they were afraid that Libyan terrorists would be trying to kill them. Now, you're about 100 times as safe in any European city as you are in any American city, but uh, people were cowering, uh, you know, in, in terror over this uh, uh, monster who was going to destroy us if we uh, got out of our holes. Uh, after a huge propaganda campaign like that, it's possible to carry off a single air raid, and that's about it. Let's turn to Panama. Again, the Panama invasion followed a major campaign to terrorize the domestic population. The Panama invasion came two months after George Bush announced this utterly fraudulent drug war, uh, and the media, the press and television and so on were just flooded with... Uh, warnings and fear about how these Hispanic narco-traffickers led by the arch-monster uh, Noriega are coming up here to shoot your kids with uh, cocaine. Uh, so I was cowering in terror again. And then they ran a very fast uh, attack against a completely defenseless enemy. I mean, to invade Panama is a joke. I mean, it's all, I mean, American troops are right there. You know, that's like crossing the street. Uh, and there's no Panamanian military or anything like that. So it's a walkover. You just wipe out. Uh, you know, they came in with massive firepower. Uh, nobody was opposing it because there was nothing there. Uh, and they were very quickly able to get over it and steal the Archmaniac and save us all from, uh, you know, having our kids uh, zonked out with drugs. Uh, again, that fits perfectly. Uh, take Iraq. Uh, notice what happened. Uh, the uh, again, there was a huge campaign of demonization. Uh, the media had to suppress totally the fact that there were uh, that e even high U.S. officials agreed that there were diplomatic options that could be pursued. All of that was silenced. Nevertheless, as I mentioned last night, the uh, uh, about two thirds of the population, right up until the beginning of the bombing, uh, were uh, opposed. Were in favor of a diplomatic settlement, not knowing that there was such a proposal on the table by Iraq. I would have been far higher if they'd known the facts. And notice another fact. Uh, this is the first time, as far as I know, in history, that opposition, massive opposition, public opposition to a war, like big demonstrations with hundreds of thousands of people, came along before the war. And in the case of Vietnam, you know, there were hundreds of thousands of American troops in Vietnam. Uh, rampaging all over the place, and the war had been going on for years before there was any public protest. In this case, there were substantial demonstrations uh, in Washington and elsewhere, uh, meaning hundreds of thousands of people, before the bombing started. Well, that indicates that, again, is a sign of the, uh, uh, of the unusually high opposition to intervention. Uh, when the so-called war took place, it was carefully planned so that there would be no war at all. Uh, there was, a war is something where two sides shoot at each other, and that never happened in this case. Uh, the Pentagon vastly overestimated, they now even concede, uh, the number, the strength of the Iraqi forces. Uh, the forces that they were bombarding in the south were, first of all, a fraction of what they claimed, and secondly, were mostly Kurdish and Shiite conscripts kind of hiding in the sand trying to survive. Uh, when the uh, U.S. troops moved finally. It was about two day, three days, and there was no opposition because there was nobody there. They had all destroyed it. Well, again, that's the kind of war they can carry out. Uh, 